Let's get to the Word of God. Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. Here we are, the last chapter in part two of our series on the book of Acts. We're at the last hundred meters this week and next week. And then, Lord willing, we will jump into a new series in the coming weeks after that. And so here we are, Acts chapter 12. And tonight we're looking at verses 1 to 19. And if you don't have a Bible with you, put up your hand. Our ushers are coming forward now. Put it up nice and high. Don't be shy. This is Hope Bible Church. We want people to have Bibles. Get your hands up, and our ushers will put one in your lap. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please keep that so that you can continue to study God's Word on your own as a gift from us to you. And it's on page 536, our text tonight, 536 in those Bibles being handed out. Acts 12, 1 to 19. The title for this message tonight is Faith Under Fire. Faith Under Fire. We live in a day that will, this will only be the case increasingly until Christ comes back. We live in a day where our faith is under fire. It is under constant bombardment. Day in, day out, circumstances across the board. But here's the question we want to start with tonight. When your faith is under fire, who or what is your confidence in? When your faith is under fire, who or what are you putting your confidence in? Because we will all put it in something or someone. It's not a matter of if. It's just a matter of who or what. Do you have confidence in the chaos? Who or what are you putting your confidence in when your faith is under fire? You say, what does that mean? When your faith gets tested. When your faith is tested in a variety of ways, our faith gets tested. I want you to think of that situation right now that's testing your faith in the Lord. Will you believe his promises in that moment? Will you believe in his nature and character, his goodness, his kindness, his love, his care of you? Your face under fire. When the temptation comes and everything inside your flesh wants to compromise and run to that, your face under fire. When you, when you desperately need that provision and you can see absolutely no way that that's going to come, your faith's under fire right there. Who or what are you putting your confidence in? Loved one? We're going to put it in someone or something. See, here's the truth, and maybe you're already getting it. When those situations hit, and you, and you may say right here, actually, you may say, you know what, I'm, I'm not getting tested. Things are just rolling for me. Uh, just wait. Just wait. It's coming. And praise the Lord for the season you're in. But it's coming. Your faith will be under fire. And when those situations hit, what or who we're putting our faith in, don't you notice this? It comes out the most. We get bumped, and what's inside comes out the most. It's easy to say when things are cruising, oh yeah, totally, faith in the Lord, he's good, he's good, and then he allows this. Faith's under fire. What's coming out of you? 
There's the fear. There's the anxiety. There's the self-pity. There's the despair. There's the hopelessness. It was already in there. But out of his love, he allowed it to happen and come out to deal with it. You see the problem, and so do I, that we face every day, every day, in our unbelief in the Lord, we misplace our faith, and we put it in all kinds of people and things that can't hold it, instead of anchoring it in the only one who can, instead of anchoring it in God alone. And what's the result? You've seen it in your life. I've seen it in mine, and we see it in this culture to no end. Fear instead of confidence. Anxiety, anyone struggling with, tempted with anxiety right now in this room? Watching online, anyone there? Instead of peace. Despair instead of hope. Doubt instead of faith. And a compromised witness. I got great news. Great news. God's, forget what I say. God's word has great news for us tonight. And it is this. If you are saved in Jesus Christ, and only if you are saved in Jesus Christ, you've repented of your sin and confessed him as Lord. You haven't just said some prayer sometime but didn't mean it with your heart. You have truly repented and turned from your sin and confessed him as Lord. Here's the deal. You can always have confidence when your faith is under fire. If you are not saved, you can't have that confidence until that happens. Love you enough to tell you it. You can't have the confidence. Here, here's the deal. Big idea. Write this down. Oh, let's, Lord, help us tonight. Help me, please, Lord, to be clear. When our faith is under fire, your confidence must be in Jesus alone. When faith is under fire, your confidence must. It's not an option any other place. When your faith, when my faith is under fire, our confidence must be in Jesus alone. We can have 100% confidence 100% of the time in 100% of the situations we face. That's good news. But it's got to be in him. And so here, let's get our context. We see this afresh. Jesus is continuing to build his church. If you remember from Acts eleven nineteen to 30, what brought us here? We got a snapshot of the life of the church in Antioch. Antioch, here's the map up here. Team, Lydia, make sure you put the big idea back up after this. So there's Antioch. That is the capital of Syria, okay? And Antioch, if you remember, was the first international local church made up of both Jews and Gentiles, Love it. And God's hands upon that church. Amen? What an what a amazing picture of Antioch right there. God's hands on that church, and that church is flourishing for the glory of God. And we have to understand this. We see, we've seen it all throughout the book of Acts, so let's not forget it. Let's tune in, and we see it again today in our world again and again. Whenever the church expands, whenever the church multiplies, whenever God's kingdom advances, the devil does not sit back. He reloads. He reloads against the church. You've seen the pattern in Acts, and we see the pattern today, and the church is opposed. Externally, from outside, and we saw internally, from even those confessing to be Christians in the church, 
Acts 5. And here in our text today, it's 44 AD. The church is approximately 11 years old at this point from when it was birthed back in Acts 2. And the focus shifts from the church in Antioch back to the church in Jerusalem. And we see there's trouble brewing. Persecution's increasing. And the church is about to face a crisis. A crisis. Their faith is about to be put under fire. And through the church's response and God's miraculous work among them, we see three crucial actions. Loved ones, let's tune in. Three crucial actions we must live out by faith in the power of God when that opposition comes, when our faith is put under fire, if we are to have confidence anchored in Jesus alone, stay faithful on mission, and see him build his church for his glory. Three crucial actions. You ready to go? Let's stand to honor the authority of God's word. We're going to read Acts 19. Acts 12, sorry, 1 to 5. We're not going to read all 19 verses tonight. Let's start with 1 to 5. James killed and Peter in prison. So you got to, there's persecution, trouble's brewing. Let's go, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Hear the word of the Lord, all God's people said, amen, you may be seated. Acts 12, 1 and 19. When my faith is under fire, we see it right here, first five verses, I must pray fervently. When my faith is under fire, I must pray fervently. Why? Knowing this, knowing this, loved one, right here. God will hear it. I must pray fervently, knowing what? God will will hear it. See, faith's first response. How do you know you're responding by faith? Faith's first response is to turn to God in fervent, not apathetic, not complacent, not, well, when I get around to it, prayer, not, well, this is my last resort prayer. No. Faith's first response is to turn to God in fervent prayer. Hey, question, what's yours? What's yours? That's convicting, isn't it? What's mine? Will you pray fervently? When that faith is under fire, will you pray fervently? You look at verses one to four. See, at the same time, the church in Antioch is growing, it's flourishing, exploding. The church in Jerusalem is under fire. Here it is, map on here again. There's Jerusalem. So Antioch's just up from that. Now we're back in the hub Jerusalem. And specifically, did you notice the text? Who's leading the persecution against the church? The hands of a ruthless Roman king named Herod, who because of his love, notice this, this is going to be important for next week too, all throughout chapter 12, who because of his love for the glory and praise of man, and because he wanted to garner favor with the Jews, he was, notice the text, violently laying hands on and persecuting the Christians. We see in verse two there, notice this, 
Herod didn't just pick any Christian to kill. He was very different from Saul back in Acts 8. Saul would just go around, and if you were a believer in Jesus Christ, he'd be knocking on your door, kicking it down, dragging you out, taking you to prison, and killing you. Didn't matter. Man, woman, child, he's on it. Herod is a little more strategic. Who does he go after? He goes after the leaders of the church. The enemy will always go after the leaders of the church. And he still does today. And it is relentless. Shameless plug. Please pray for your leaders and our families. Relentless. He goes after the leaders. Specifically, who did he go after? Look at the name drop. Went after the apostle James. One of the apostles whom, what did he do? He arrested and beheaded James by the sword. James, don't forget, James was a big deal in the church. He wouldn't say he was a big deal. He was a big deal. He was one of Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He was one of the closest to the Christ. And Herod took him out to instill fear, to instill doubt in the promises of God in his church. And so as Herod saw how much this pleased the Jews, go back to the text, the Jews hated the church. Next, he's like, okay, I'm going to do this again. I want more praise of man. I kind of like this. He went all the way to the top of the leadership rung. And who did he arrest? Go to the text. The apostle Peter. Peter was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. The leader. And what's Herod going to do? He's going to kill him in front of the crowds. But there's a problem. Did you see it in the text? What's, Herod, what's the problem Herod runs into? It's the feast of Passover. It's the feast of Passover. Verse 3, the feast of unleavened bread, they call it. And by Jewish law, he couldn't kill anyone during the Passover. Let's get some clarity. Passover was one day. And then Passover feast that they still celebrate today is seven days after the Passover day. So this is in that feast day, okay? So the start of the feast, and these days were considered holy, so there's no executions. That's why they tried to rush Jesus' execution before the Passover hit. But notice verse 4. Go back to the text. I was in the book. When Herod arrests Peter, he knows how valuable he is. Did you see what he does? Think Herod knows how valuable Peter is? Think he wants to squash this upstart church? and crush them so they have absolutely no hope left in their hearts? No confidence? What does he do? He puts them in what is the equivalent to a maximum security prison today. Did you see it? Look at the text. Maximum security prison with four squads of soldiers to guard him. Now let's get clarity. One squad is four soldiers. How, okay, do the math. Quick, quick. How many, how many soldiers, making sure everyone's with me, how many soldiers are guarding Peter? 16 Roman soldiers, sentries guarding one guy. One guy, a fisherman. 16 ruthless, trained killer soldiers on one guy. Herod did not want anything getting in the way. He wanted to ensure that there's no humanly possible way of escape. And we see further on in the text, he actually has two of them chained to Peter's wrist, one on each wrist. 
and then he's got two more outside the door. They're chained to Peter. No human possible way. Now notice the church's response. Verse five, go back to the text. This is amazing. So Peter was kept in prison, but, oh, that's a good word, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. See, the first response of the church to the crisis, when their faith was under fire, even in the heartache, don't forget the church is grieving. Do you find it hard to be fervent in prayer when you're grieving? They've just lost one of their beloved leaders. The heartache, the grief is real. But they're not going to sit around in self-pity. They're not going to sit around and say, woe is me. Yes, we grieve with those who grieve and we weep with those who weep. But they've got a mission. And they've got a God over that mission. And so right in the midst of their grief, maybe that's a word for someone here today. Right in the midst of your grief, you've gone horizontal when your orientation needs to go vertical. Right in the midst of it. Don't wait till you think you feel better. Feelings are great followers, but they're horrible leaders. You lead them. Notice what they do. Even in the heartache, the grief, the despair, it is earnest prayer to God for Peter. That term earnest, by the way, circle earnest, it means this, fervent, strenuous, like laid out, continuous, no slacking in it. It is absolutely agonizing in prayer for Peter. Don't, like, think about that in the grief. Don't we turn inward often in our grief? It's all about me in my grief. Notice what the Spirit of God leads the people of God to do. Turn outward and upward. And they find hope. Don't turn inward in your grief. Turn upward. Watch this. You see it on the screen. Write it down. Herod's weapon was the sword. The church's weapon was prayer. Herod's weapon was the sword. The church's weapon was prayer. What weapon are you trying to use when your faith is under fire? No matter the odds, no matter the perceptions, they knew God was greater They knew he could do something. It was an impossible situation, but they knew the God who was over it. They knew he could do something. Their orientation went vertical, and they didn't just get, notice what they didn't do. They didn't just get stressed and then ruminate and make all these assumptions, and oh, this is going to go bad, and this, this, what are we going to do here? They didn't have a planning meeting. They had a prayer meeting. What do you and I do? Well, if that doesn't happen, then this. And what's going to happen to us as a church? And where are we going to go? They just had a prayer meeting. Are you? Am I? See, is this your first response when the crisis hits? When your faith is under fire? Is it mine? I wish it was a lot more, if I'm honest. How about right now in the middle of your grief... The heartache over the death of someone you deeply cared about, perhaps. 
in the midst of your uncertainty of what happens now in the situation. What's that? And you're so tempted to let your mind run. Don't. Let your heart run to Christ. Don't let your mind run to things you have no power over. Let your heart run to the throne of grace. Would you run in this situation to God with a Godward orientation and anchor your confidence in him or would you run from him and have a self-orientation? A self-orientation and anchor your confidence, your faith in other things. See, there's only two options, loved ones. There's no middle ground here. You either run to God or you run from him. That's it. There's only two options. Which will you choose? You run from him. God's a planner. Can we all agree with that? We just read how the story ends. He's got a plan, right? But do you go into planning mode without even going to him first? It's just, I got to do this. Now I know, because I know what's best. I got to run and I got to do this and I got to figure this out. Uh, Hold on. Don't run from him. His ways are not your ways. His thoughts are not your thoughts. How about this? Do you run from God to fear and anxiety when it's under fire? tension hits? How about this? Do you run from God by lashing out in anger and deflecting your insecurity on your people around you? Spouses can relate to this pretty well. Do you lash out on your kids, on your wife, on your neighbors, on your coworkers? Is he running from God? How about this? Do you run from God to your self-pity? Woe is me. I just have it so bad. It's just so hard. Yes, it's hard, loved ones. And we need to bear one another's burdens, but under no circumstance are we to turn inward to the self-pity mode. Because that's saying, God, I know better. It shouldn't be this way. Woe is me. Hold on. Are you running to other things to take the edge off? You hear that expression a lot. I just need to take the edge off. You hear that? You're trying to take the edge off and running to, here's one, here's one, retail therapy. I'm just going to go blow a thousand bucks. I just got to have more clothes. I just got to get a car. I just have to get something. Just grab some security off the shelves. Or do you try to take the edge off, run from God, and running to your alcohol, running to your drugs, running to food and overindulging again and again and again to take the edge off? Do you run to that relationship? Well, I'm feeling so insecure, so I have to get a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I just have to run to my spouse to fix all my problems. I'm going to put all my hope and confidence in them. They'll let you down every time. I mean, mean, I I know that because I do that to you all the time, honey. I I get it. I get it, I get it, me, me, for real, right here. I'll just stay on the manuscript. Would you, would you run from God, here it is, and isolate yourself from his people? Instead of, did you notice what the Jerusalem church did when their faith was under fire? They didn't run in different directions and say, I'm just gonna isolate myself. They came together and had a prayer meeting. 
Because there's power when God's people come together. There's encouragement when God's people come together. And the Spirit of God is ministering the Word of God through His people for the glory of God. They didn't isolate. Isolation, here, write this down. Isolation breeds destruction. If you think you're going to be okay by running from God's plan of the church, you have to think again. That is wrong ecclesiology, loved ones. It just is. Remember, remember two weeks ago, we are stronger together by God's design. The Christian life was never meant to be a solo mission. By God's design, to come together and have a brother or sister come together and pray over you, pray the promises of God, the truth of God. Man, it builds our faith. Amen. And if you're wondering about that, you got to come to one of our churchwide prayer nights. Man, last Wednesday in this room, it was rocking on that prayer night. Wow, going to war for the next generation? Don't miss it. You ever notice how much the early church is praying together? They're just praying all the time. May it be so. Please, Lord. Or, here's another thing. Would you just offer up an obligatory prayer? Like, okay, God, help me. And then you just run right ahead of him. You don't even wait. You don't even wait for his counsel. You just run. Okay, I said to help God. Now it's up to me. Really? Wait. Wait. Or, here's the thing. Do you just, that one time, and you're not just continuing in earnest fervent, stretched out, maxed out, agonizing prayer, sitting at the feet of God. Faith's first response is to turn to God in fervent prayer. Question, will you pray fervently in that situation today? Will you keep first things first, scripture-fed, spirit-led Prayer, taking God's word, praying his truth and his promises in their context faithfully back to him and pouring your heart out to him. We have a website of this church filled with resources for you on how to do this. If you need help getting going, but you gotta use it, loved ones. It's all there, but you gotta eat for yourself. Loved ones, There can be no, hear me, there can be no confidence in the crisis without a vertical orientation as our first response. You won't get it. You won't find it anywhere else. Your faith will not stand under fire without it. Neither will mine. What do you need to fervently and strenuously bring before the Lord today and join, don't isolate, join with your brothers and sisters in that That's why Satan works so hard to keep you from coming here. To keep you from going to your small group. To keep you to come to prayer night. This is why. I'll just launch a weapon of mass distraction at you. All the time. All the time. When my faith is under fire, I must pray fervently. Vertical orientation. God will hear it. And with this, you must believe. Here it goes. We're going to pray fervently. We better believe unswervingly. You must believe unswervingly that God can do it. God can do it. Say that with me. God can do it. Yes, there it is. Preach that to yourself. God can do it. God is sovereign and can do the impossible. Loved one, have you forgotten that? God is sovereign over all things. He exercises his power over all creation that he created and sustains. He can do the impossible, but do you truly 
believe it? Do you truly believe it? That's a key word, truly, in a moment. Let's go back to the text, 6 to 11. Peter is rescued. Watch this. Okay, buckle up. Here we go. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, that is Peter, on that very night, so the night before his execution, okay, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door. They were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in his cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he, the angel, said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along the street, and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. That's that's awesome. Our God is awesome. See, now the text transitions to inside Peter's jail cell. Now notice, notice it, don't miss this. Circle the word sleeping. What is Peter doing the night before his execution? When his life is on the line. Is he seen here lashing out at God and others? Why I've been so faithfully, I left everything to follow you. Why are you doing this to me? And oh, well, if James had not been caught, then I wouldn't be in this position. Is he doing that? Yes or no? No, he's not doing that. Is he wallowing in self-pity and grumbling and complaining? Oh, I've got it so hard. God, come on, God, I've been serving you. What is going on? I don't like this circumstance. I want out. Is he doing that? Yes or no? No. Uh, Is he filled? Here's a big one with fear and anxiety. What, what'll, happen to my, what'll happen to my wife? Because he's got a wife, don't forget. Peter's got a wife, which means he's got a house, which means he's got extended family, which means he has a reputation in the community. We don't know if he had any kids, but it's like, like what's gonna happen? Is he, is he filled with fear and anxiety? Yes or no? No. Uh, what's he doing? He's sleeping. He's sleeping. He's at peace. He's at peace. Why? Because he knew what we must today, loved ones. That his life as a follower of Jesus Christ was ultimately not in King Herod's hands. But it's in God's. His good father that loves him. And will only work what is for Peter's greatest good. And out of God's greatest love for him. He's sleeping. Would you be sleeping? Would I? Would you? Let's just be honest and let the word of God do his thing. No matter what was going on, no matter what was about to happen, whether the execution happened or not, 
God, the good father, would take care of Peter. He would either deliver Peter from this situation or he would bring him home. Win-win. It's a win-win. He either gets promoted or he gets to go on preaching the gospel. There's not a bad option here. That's where a Godward orientation takes you. See, I love how one commentator put this. He says, Peter was guarded by soldiers, but his heart was guarded by God. Oh, that is so good. Peter was guarded by soldiers, four of them in this moment, but his heart was... Those three guys weren't the only ones in the cell. His heart was guarded by God. Reminds me of Philippians 4, 6, and 7. It says, be anxious of nothing. What are you anxious about today, right now? Hear the word of the Lord for you. Be anxious of nothing, but in everything, with prayer, fervent prayer and petition, present your request to God. And what does God promise will happen as you go to the throne of grace? And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Where do you need to do that today? As he placed his confidence in the hands of the one who's sovereign, good, and loving, and is in control of all things. Oh my goodness. Loved one, here, here, here. little encouragement for you. Whatever that anxiety is for you, whether your faith's under fire right now, submit it to God, renew your mind in his word, and go to bed. Go to bed. Sometimes that's the most spiritual thing we can do. Just go to bed. And then you see in verses 7 to 11, you see how God, go back to the text, don't miss it. You see how God answers the prayers of his people. And, and notice this, the church is on their knees in this moment. And they have no idea this is, a, this is happening. Keep that in mind. All they know is God calls us to pray fervently, so we're going to do that. They don't know what's going on. We'll go back to the text. A brilliant light shines in the darkness of the cell shines in the darkness of the cell, and Peter gets a visitor from heaven. Who is it? Go to the text. An angel. Who's an angel? A messenger from God. And what does the angel do? Peter's sleeping on the floor between these two souls. I don't even know how he would do Like, what? How would he do that? Was he on his knees? In like, I know that he's got to have some, like, cramping going on. Anyway, whatever. But... Angel comes in, he gent now gently, by the way, this word strike means gently. We're gonna see another strike next week as not gentle. But this one, he's not like, hey, Peter. He's like, no. He's like, hey, Peter, come on. It's time to get up. He gently strikes and nudges him, tells him to get up quickly, and oh yeah, oh yeah, what is Peter's like, oh, I'm you imagine? Peter's like, oh, I do these chains. Oh yeah, I'll take care of those. Plink, plonk. Chains fall off. Notice the text. Peter didn't have a key. Peter had God. There's a, don't worry about your chains. Now, notice this. This blew my mind in preparing this message. The guards are standing there. And they have no idea this is happening. He's chained to them. Plunk. 
Now you may say this, to try to explain away the miracle, you say, well, they're totally asleep. I mean, it's the middle of the night, right? It's the middle of the night. Look at the context. It's the middle of the night. They're at, but here, loved ones, hold on. They're actually probably not asleep at all. And by the way, would, would all four soldiers be asleep at once? Really? You think all four? Here, here's why. Because the Roman law, the soldiers knew the Roman law said that if a prisoner escaped on their watch, they would suffer the same penalty that that prisoner was going to have. In this case, death. He's scheduled to be executed. They would be executed. And we see what happens to them in verse 19. They actually were. They're not falling asleep. Their life is on the line. Not to mention... To mention this. So Peter is like passed out. He's getting like a tight tw- eight hours and he's like sawing logs. Angel comes. Hey, hey, Peter got me. Like, ah. Yeah, big Peter, hero of the story. Ah. What do I do? Chains fall off. He says, Get up and get dressed. You think, you think, okay, okay, okay. Let's just take for a second that the soldiers are sleeping. You think that they would have heard Peter rustling around trying to find his clothes? And then putting them on, I don't know what you're like, but if I get woken up in the middle of the night, there's a sound, I'm like, oh, what's that? And then he's like, hey, you need to go check. I'm like, okay, I'll go check. Light's not on, I'm just stumbling. And then inevitably, bang, into the drum. And then the, my loving spouse, she's just so loving and so kind. She's like, shh, I'm like, that's okay too. Love you. Like it's just this is this is what happens. Are you the mo- are you like in stealth mode when you get woken up in the middle of the night? Peter's just half asleep. He's dazed. Oh no, what do I do? Where's my is this my sandal? Like it's just you think those guards are just gonna stay sleeping. They're standing there, it is a miracle. It's a miracle. <laughs> He's not, he's not, he doesn't know that it's even, look at, Peter didn't even know what was being done by the angel was even real. He doesn't even realize that yet until verse 11. He thinks he's having a dream. <laughs> this, is, this is who God's using right now. Yeah, exactly. We need to understand this. Ordinary people in the hands of an extraordinary God. Peter's escape plan. He didn't have one. God's like, come on, Peter. I'm going to yell. Where's my coat? You got my sandals. Okay. He's walking in a daze. Verse 10. And then, and that, that's not enough. Look at the awesomeness of our God. Look at how awesome our God is. They get past the first guard. Verse 10. The ones that are chained to Peter, or were, chained to Peter's wrists. They just get past that. And then they keep reading. And then almost as an afterthought, they pass the second guard. It's like they get past the first guard. And they notice the text. And then they pass the second one. The two soldiers standing outside the door. Oh, or for Peter, it's more like, where's the angel? I gotta hold him. And the guards are standing there thinking he's still in the prison. What's impossible with God? What is impossible with God in your situation? And then they get, okay, wait, but they're still locked in the prison. 
This is just outside of his cell. What are they going to do with the prison? There's a big iron gate that only the guards had keys to. Oh, oh yeah, okay, well, got that. They get to the iron gate, and <laughs> that was the main entrance to the prison, and it doesn't matter. Look at the text. It just opens by itself. It's just Peter. And the door. There's our God. A dazed and confused son. And yet God is miraculously showing us his glory. The door just flings open. It's like, no keys, no problem. Remember that little slogan, okay? When you are saved in Jesus Christ, no keys, no problem. Say that. No keys, no problem. Jesus has given you, if you're saved in him, the only keys that matter. The keys to death in Hades. The keys of the gospel that releases people from it. Matthew 16. Those are the only keys that matter. And he's given you the beautiful key of the gospel to see those prisoners freed. No keys. No problem. Hey, remember last week we talked about children's discipleship in the home? Just look for teach your children, right? Gospel lenses every day. What's a good gospel lens for this one? When you're seeing God's awesome power. I used to do it with my kids all the time. Sometimes still do. They don't laugh as much. But we're walking into like a Walmart or something. Walking into Walmart. You know, they have those automatic doors. Mm -hmm. Discipleship opportunity. I remember like this. I remember like this. When they were really young, Isaac and Sam, walking into this Walmart. I said, guys, wait, wait, stop. I'm like, what? And I'm like, Here, here's what we're going to do. Watch this, watch this. And I just go. And the doors go. And Isaac and Sam, it was amazing. They were just like. And I'm like. Let's go. Teach them. When you see those doors open. Acts 12. Are you, are you believing unswervingly God can do the impossible? See, everyday life. It's all over the place, loved ones. Then the angel guides them down the street, out of prison, and immediately leaves them. Verse 11. Peter finally comes to. He fully wakes up. He testifies in certainty that it was God and God alone who delivered and rescued him from the hands of Herod. See, here's what we need to see right here. Watch this. Watch this. Dazed and confused follower of Jesus Christ. Watch this. God often stacks the odds so we know exactly who delivered us from them. Peter can take no credit for anything except being a dazed and confused man. God stacks the odds so that the only explanation is him. That's how he gets the glory. And then look what happened. Verses 12 to 16. This just gets better. Luke adds some humor here. 12 to 16. When he realized this, Peter, he realized, wow, God delivered me. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. It's the only time we hear about Rhoda in the Bible. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. I love that. Okay, I just love the people that God uses. It gives me so much hope. See, after getting rescued from prison, Peter heads to Mary's house. 
Now, this was a well-known gathering place of the church, obviously. He knew they'd be there. It was probably the main gathering place in Jerusalem, perhaps. And after <laughs> Mary's a believer, and her son, you notice the text in verse 12, was Mark. Yes, this is the Mark that wrote the Gospel of Mark. He was the cousin of Barnabas. And Mark becomes, this is his intro, he becomes a major player in the next three chapters of Acts. Because he accompanies Saul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We'll get to that in part three. Now, notice verse 12. What is the church still doing days later? They're doing what? They're praying. That prayer meeting's going on for days. They're still praying. They don't know anything's happened. They have no idea. Hey, loved one, good encouragement for us. Keep fervently praying because you have no idea how God's working behind the scenes. You have no idea what chains are coming off and what doors are being opened and what light is shining in the dark. Keep praying. Just because you don't see anything doesn't mean nothing's happening. But you don't have because you don't ask. Keep going. And as they're praying, Peter starts knocking on the door. Hey, guys, let me in. Can you see him looking over his shoulder? His like, life's on the line. He's like, guys, church. He's knocking on the door. Hey, it's me. And the servant girl of the house, Rhoda, comes to answer. She recognizes Peter's voice, and she's so overcome with joy. Peter's like, he's like, Rhoda, is that you, Rhoda? Peter, Peter, Rhoda, Rhoda's like, Peter, Peter. Like, I said, instead of opening the door, Rhoda runs and Peter's like my life's on the line let me in and she's like Peter's here guys Peter's here the prayer meeting gets interrupted and she's so stoked about Peter she's overcome with joy and Peter's still knocking Rhoda quick and she exclaims to the church notice the text in the middle of the prayer meeting Peter's outside your prayer's answered and now you think the church would be stoked like yeah how did the church respond verse 15 notice the text instead of believing that God had answered their prayers and done the impossible in rescuing Peter they doubt her they doubt the Lord they doubt his work, and they say this. Notice the text. You're out of your mind, Rhoda. You're out of your mind. Think, think what just happened there. Lord, at the start of the day, Lord, rescue Peter. We're going to pray for Peter. Lord, rescue Peter. You can do it. I know he's 16 stars, but Lord, rescue Peter. Rhoda's like, he's released. And then the church is like, you're out of your mind. Not happening. This is what's happening. I love how God uses ordinary people in the hands of an extraordinary God. But here's what we need to take. Here's, what, here's what's really ironic. Who's truly out of their mind in this scenario? Who's truly out of their mind here? The rest of the church. Not Rhoda. Rhoda believes it's Peter. She believes God answered. The rest of the church, nah. We've been praying for it, but no. Nope. See, in their unbelief that God could do the impossible and answer their prayer, they are out of their mind. They have discounted 
the character and power of God. They doubt God's work to answer that prayer so much. Now watch this. Look how far the unbelief goes. So much that then they resort to wonky theology. They say, okay, Rhoda's persisting. It's Peter, go over the door, go over the door. And they're like, it's not, it's not, it's not. She goes, yes, it is. He's like, no, it's his angel. Do you know what they're putting their faith in right now? That was a Jewish superstition. There's nothing in the Bible about an angel because in Jewish superstition, here, a little clarity, in Jewish superstition, they believe that there was an angel that could transform itself to look like the person. And they're like, we would rather believe and put our faith in the superstition than in the fact of who God is and what he can do. Okay, I want to have lots of grace here because you and I do this all the time. Who's out of their mind? Who's out of their mind? And more easily putting faith in that superstition than in the God and who God says he is and what he says he'll do. Where are we doing the same thing right now? Maybe for you it's not a Jewish superstition. But I'm going to move from putting my confidence and faith in the Lord and I'm going to go put it in a person. Loved one, I love you so much. Don't be out of your mind. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to move from putting my faith in the confidence and character of God that he can really do what we've been praying. And I'm going to put that in my job. I'm going to put that in my finances. I'm going to put that in having children. I'm going to put that in getting a spouse. Instead of my confidence staying in the Lord. When that, when that fear comes, when my face under fire, I'm going to put my confidence not in the Lord. I'm going to put it in myself to try to get out of this one. Loved one, in love. I had asked myself this so many times this week. When I start to feel anxious, when I start to get tempted with that fear, I literally would pull back from my desk this week and be like, Ray, are you out of your mind? Your God is seated on the throne right now. He is ruling and reigning. Any provision you think you need, any relationship that needs to be reconciled, any health issue that you are facing, any companionship that you desire, all of it is found in him. Are you out of your mind, Ray? Just like these believers, to run and put your faith in all these other things instead of the living God. We have to be out of our mind to do that. Maybe we should have t-shirts made, eh, Kev? We should get some swag made. Be like, not out of my mind. Hashtag faith. (laughs) That's a good motto, isn't it? Not out of my mind. Faith. Vertical orientation. Where are you doing the same thing as these believers? Where are you doing it? So then Peter continues knocking. He says, guys, it's me. They finally open the door, verse 16, and they're amazed. Yeah, no kidding. They're astonished when they see him, maybe feeling a little convicted. Here's what this teaches us. We want to have lots of grace for the believers because we do it the same too. 
But it's very, listen, it's very possible to know what to pray and be praying the right things, but not believing it will actually happen. Where are you doing that? It's very easy to know what to pray without actually believing what you're praying. That's what's happening here. It's very possible to not believe that God will and can actually do what you're praying. And we do this all the time. I know God can, but, but it, but what, but what? He's God. He's on the throne. He does the impossible. Yeah, I know God did it last time, but this one's different. No, unswervingly, loved ones. Where is that for you when your faith is under fire? That need that must be met, the heart that is too hard, the hostility or the impossible situation that you can't see a way through. Disciples definitely couldn't imagine this. That severed relationship, the crippling sickness, where is it, where is it, where is it? And it's not a matter of if God will answer you, it's the fact that he can. God's gonna answer according to his word and his perfect will in his time, in his way, either in this life or the life to come. But he can do it. Loved ones, our God is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, forever. Jesus is ruling, reigning with all authority, power, and sovereignty. He is unstoppable, and he can do the impossible, and will do it according to his will. But here's the reality we need to see from the text. Often, Jesus chooses to limit his power to the prayers of his people. You don't have because you don't ask. And when you ask, you ask with the wrong motives. I love this one commentary. Oh, Thomas Watson. He's, oh, this is so good. Write this down. The angel, the, remember this. The angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. Oh, that is so good. Yes, Lord, lock your faith in our hearts right now. The angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. The fervent prayers of the saints, not the complacent, the fervent prayer of the saints. See, here's the thing. Jesus still, you'll see it on the screen. Here's why we have confidence. Jesus still shines light in the darkness. See how all this points right to him. He still shines light. He says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever comes to me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus still shines light in the darkness. Here it is. Jesus still breaks chains. He still breaks chains of sin in that enslave us. John 8, 36, Jesus says, he who the Son sets free, those who repent of their sin and confess him as Lord, is free indeed. Chains, shackles of sin, no matter how long you've been steeped in it, gone because of the power and the blood of Jesus in a moment. You don't have to earn that. You will be free indeed. Here's another one. Jesus still opens doors. He still opens doors that only he can open. Revelation chapter three, verse seven. He says, I am the one who opens doors that no man can open and shuts doors that no man can shut. That iron gate has no chance. What iron gate needs to be moved in your life right now that only Jesus can open? And you've been trying to kick and kick and kick and you're so worn out from kicking, it's time to get on your knees and get vertical. What is that for you? He opens doors that no man can open according to his perfect will for his perfect glory. And if that's not enough, watch this. Jesus still rescues and delivers. Verse 11. I love Colossians 1, 13 to 14. He says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
<laughs> Come on, this is our God, but will you unswervingly trust him? He's still able. And if you're here and you've never accepted Christ as your savior, hey friend, I wanna tell you something. You are not here by accident. You are not here by accident. You are here because the sovereign king of the universe brought you here tonight. Why? Because he has a word for you. And he's saying, come, come with your darkness. Come with your sin. Those chains will fall. That darkness will be obliterated. That door, the door to eternal life and the forgiveness of sin will be opened. But will you come? You can't logical your way through this. You can't earn your way to this. It has to come through faith alone, Christ alone, by his grace alone, because he loves you. And he says, you come. I brought you here. You come to me. Jesus, still, you must repent. And I want to be clear, brothers and sisters, this is no prosperity gospel. This doesn't mean all our prayers will be answered how we want them to, when we want, and who. The healing might not come on this side of eternity. The person you've been praying for, you might never see them saved until eternity and get clarity on that there. That provision might not be provided when you think you need or how you think you need it. But here's the thing. It does mean that we are calling on an omnipotent God who will do all of his good, loving, and perfect will in response to the bold, impossible, scripture-fed, spirit-led prayers of his people. Our God is the same God. Jesus, put this on the screen. Here it is. You want some fuel for your prayer life? Fuel for your faith life when it's under fire? Jesus can still do it. So preach that to yourself again and again and again. Jesus can still do it. Those chains can still fall. That darkness can still be broken. But is that enough for you to hold fast and pray his word and not doubt that he is able Jesus still can. God is sovereign and can do the impossible. Loved one, do you truly believe it? Hey, brothers and sisters, where do you need to repent of your unbelief? Who or what have you stopped praying for because the odds seem too stacked? The heart seems too hard and the need seems too great. Or brothers and sisters, what prayers are you praying for right now? That like the disciples, although your theology may be right, you're even praying verses from God's word. You know what you should pray for but your heart is doubting that God can and actually will do it, what he promises to do. Loved ones, hey, eyes up here, eyes up here. Don't be out of your mind. I've been so challenged with that this week. Don't be out of your mind. Jesus still can. Will you still go to him? And it's time to repent of our unbelief. Say, pray, Lord, I believe, but I need your help. I need your faith in me to believe in who you are. Help my unbelief. When my faith is under fire, I must pray fervently, knowing God will hear it. I must believe unswervingly, knowing that he can do it. And from this, as we go into communion, from this, when your faith is under fire, last point today, you must testify constantly. What? Of what God has done. Testify what God has done when your faith is under fire. Look at this. Testifying to God's work fuels the faith of God's people. Will you testify? Look at 17 to 19, last three verses. 
But motioning them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. That's a different James, by the way. That's the one who wrote the book of James, James' popular name. Then he departed and went to another place. Verse 18 and 19. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries, that's the guards, the squads, and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. We'll pick him up next week, but here's what we need to see. The house erupts in praise. Peter, you're back! And notice what Peter does. Shh, guys. Come down. Hey, you're back. And then what does he do? After testifying to what God did to rescue him, he tells the believers, watch this. He says, tell these things. Don't tell how good I am. Tell these things of what God has done. Testify to the work of God, to the rest of the church. Not just one time. That's an active imperative. It means keep testifying. Why? Because it fuels the faith and confidence in the Lord, no matter what opposition comes against them or crisis they would encounter. It reminds them of this. God, the Father, will be faithful. God will be faithful. Hey, last challenge. Will you testify, loved ones? Will you witness? Will you tell these things? Tell these things. When you're asked, what did you do on this weekend with a coworker sitting next to you? You're going to say, oh, I just got together with a bunch of people on Saturday night. You say, I went to church. Let me tell you about what I learned about the awesome God I serve. Tell these things, loved ones, to believers. Stir one another up in the faith. Tell them to unbelievers. Tell them the greatest thing, testifying constantly to what God has done through Jesus Christ. Peter's command, God's command is here. Don't keep it to yourself. Hope, don't keep it to yourself. Don't keep what God has done in your life to yourself. Stir up the saints by the power of the Spirit. One more time. You'll see it on the screen. When faith is under fire... Your confidence must be in Jesus alone. Pray fervently, believe unswervingly, and testify constantly. And loved ones, it's just right, it's just right that we take time to testify to the greatest rescue, deliverance, and provision that God has ever given us, which is the foundation, the anchor for all our confidence, no matter what situation we face. Here's our confidence, Jesus Christ in our place. Amen? The one whose faith in God, his word, his works, stood strong under fire. And the one who has given us the means to live this way with the confidence he had. Two elements we remember him with. We come to the table. The bread, which represents his body, which was crushed for us. And the blood, which represents, or the juice, which represents his blood that was shed for us. But before we, t- before we take communion, here it is. As we come to the table, this is a serious moment before the Lord and he's watching. And 1 Corinthians 11, 28 and 29 say this. Let a person examine himself then. So eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So we're going to take just a few moments here to be still before the Lord. There's been a lot from his word tonight. It's time to get right. If there's any unrepentant sin in your life, now's the time. Don't be flippant with it. Confess it. Repent of it. Let's come with clean hands, pure hearts to the table. And if you're here and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I'm so glad you're here. But I would ask you to not take these elements because the table of Christ, the communion table, is only for the family of God. Those who've confessed their sin 
and repented of it and surrendered to Jesus as Lord. And then afterwards, our leaders will be up here. We would love to talk with you about what it means to have a personal relationship with him. All right? Let's go into time of examination.